Ephesians chapter 4. As I said earlier, we're not going to be able to cover all the material I'd planned. We're just going to basically just kind of get into it. But as a prelude to uh, verse 17 of chapter 4 of Ephesians, I want to hopefully quickly cover some old ground because it has a bearing on what Paul is going to say. And there are some things that most of us are very familiar with, but they bear repeating because they're so critical and so important uh, to our understanding and again, as I said, to the things that Paul is going to share with us. Now, when a person believes, when a person believes in Jesus Christ and confesses him as Lord, the result is, the Bible says, that that person is born again. There has been a transformation in that person's basic nature. A transformation in that person's basic nature. There is not an improvement on what was previously there. Nor is it a matter of, of what had previously existed becoming perfected. What we're talking about is a miraculous, miraculous change in the person's nature. We're talking about a recreation having taken place. Now, Paul points this out in a number of places. Uh, God talks about it in the Old Testament in, in terms of the prophets. He talks about giving us a new heart that's reminiscent of a new life, a, new, a whole new perspective and outlook on things. But Paul makes it rather pointedly clear to us in a couple of places, and I want to have you write these verses down. If you don't know them already, I encourage you to commit them to memory. The first one is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It's in this passage that Paul reaffirms for us this great truth that a miraculous recreation has taken place. He said, if any man be in Christ, now what does it mean to be in Christ? Be in Christ means that you're a Christian. What has taken place is that the Holy Spirit has come into your life and he's done such a work as to transform you and place you into the body of Christ. He baptizes you into Christ. A miracle has taken place. So he says, if anybody be in Christ, if anybody is a Christian, in the truest sense of that word, he is, that person is, in fact, a new creation. They're a brand new creation. Now the word new in the Greek is kainos, which means new of a brand new kind never seen before. This is a brand new thing God has done. Now he goes on in that verse and he says this. If that weren't enough, he says, the old things now have passed away. And the new has come. Now, there's a lot of people who have a real hard time. I mean, intellectually, in some sense, they can grasp and, 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 and handle some of the meaning of that. But to realize it in their day-to-day -day life, to actually begin to, to live it out and to realize the fulfillment of this reality is very, very difficult for many, many people in the church. And I'm, I, I'm always talking with people, and, and, and as I listen to people, I'm listening for key phrases. I'm listening for, for insight into where their thinking is and where their understanding is of, of what's gone on in their life. And I'm hearing too many times where people really don't grasp and don't have an understanding of what it means that they're recreated. That they are recreated. Very important. 
Now, you've got to stay with me over the next couple of weeks because we've got a lot to say on this subject. And so it's very, very important that you stay with me on this. We're sadly not going to be able to cover it all this morning, but we will in the next couple of weeks. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says much the same thing in verse 4. He talks about us and he says, Don't you know that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And through that baptism and the death, we were buried with him in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, that we too might live a new life. The whole point is that when Jesus died, back here in 1989, when I put my faith in him, God miraculously transports me spiritually back, puts me into Christ on the cross. I die with him, I go in the tomb with him, and when he's raised, I'm raised, and then I'm transported back here to the future as a new creature so that I might live a new life. Again, the Greek word kainos is of a brand new kind, never before experienced, never before seen. What are some of the characteristics of this new life? It affects every aspect of us, this transformation that has gone on. And, And when he talks about a new life, he talks about it in terms of we have a new mind. Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that our mind is renewed. He says that we have a new will, we have a new heart, we have a new hope, we have a new knowledge, we have a new love, we have a new understanding, we have new wisdom, we have new perceptions. Do you find that true as you become a Christian and you move on into the, into the life of, of the church and as a Christian, your perceptions are all new. You look at things in a wholly different way than you ever have before. A whole new world has opened up to you. We have new relationships. We have uh, a new righteousness. We have new desires. We have a new inheritance. We have a new citizenship and many, many, many other new things. You see, for the born-again person, this person has been transformed totally, but not yet perfectly. You see? This is so important to understand. Christians still sin, don't they? I mean, that's a real problem for us, a real struggle with us. Well, I'm a new creation. I shouldn't sin anymore. Well, I've been transformed. Yes, you have been transformed. And you've been transformed in every aspect of your being except not perfectly. But we're still saddled with a, with a fallen humanness. We're still saddled with what we call this earth suit that we live in. And this earth suit is still affected by the residual sin. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, classic passage, describing his life as a Christian. He says, why do I do the things I don't want to do? I'm renewed. Why do I do the things I don't want to do? Now, you notice he doesn't point to the devil, he doesn't point to the world. But he zeroes right in on the cause, and he says, I do these things because it is sin still living in me. He goes on to say that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. Boy, he narrows in, he zeroes in right on the problem. Christians sin, Christians still fall short, Christians still disobey, uh, because there's sin, sin still resident in, in, in our humanness. And we've got to deal with that. 
But that doesn't mean that we're not new creatures. That doesn't mean that we haven't been transformed. That doesn't mean that we don't have an inheritance and a hope and a new relationship. All those things are still true. Both are true. Are you with me? Now, I think there's basically four reasons why people have a very, very difficult time grasping, some Christians grasping, this newness of life and being able to realize it, being able to actually live it out. The first reason is this. Many people have never been taught this. Many people have never been taught. You see, if you grow up in a church, you grow up with a whole bunch of rules and regulations. I mean, I was that way. I grew up in a religious home. I grew up in a church kind of school. I went to a Catholic school for 12 years. I was raised with a whole bunch of rules. No one ever told me what it meant to be born again. No one ever told me that God would come into my life and change me and make it possible for me to enter into a love relationship with him and to obey him. Everyone just kept telling me, obey. Keep the rules. Don't step out of line. God's going to whack you if you do. You see, so I was never uh, enculturated, if you will, into the truth of the Bible. And so lots and lots of people have never been taught this great, wondrous miracle of what we call regeneration, a transformation of the person in his basic, her basic nature. The second reason people have a hard time is not only because they haven't been taught, is, is this. Do you suppose that Satan wants you to know that you're new? Do you suppose that he wants you to experience the freedom and the joy and the fullness of the life that God has laid out for you? No! Jesus calls him the deceiver, the father of all lies. He's the chief liar. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's constantly laying accusations at the throne of God in, in, about us. And so he, there's no way in the world Satan wants you or I to realize and to grasp a hold of and to enjoy and to fulfill this new life that he's given us. No way. There's a third reason why people have a difficult time in grasping and living this out, really believing that they're new creatures. And that is this. The whole recreative event was non-experiential. I mean, we're into experience, aren't we? We're into seeing is believing, right? I believe it when I see it. Anybody relate to that? What's the Bible say? No, the Bible says believing is seeing. You believe it, then you'll see it. Doesn't Jesus say that? Oh, you have little faith? <laughs> See, we're into experiences. We're into lights and bells and whistles going off. If I don't feel something, then nothing must have happened. When Jesus talked to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus wants to know about this born-again thing, and, and he thinks he's got to be physically born again and go through all this stuff, and, and Jesus says, no, no, Nick, you got it all wrong. It's a mystery how it happens. It's like the wind blowing through the trees. You see the effect. You hear the sound. But you don't know where the wind is coming from or where it's going. It's a mystery how it happens. It's a non-experiential, non-tangible event that occurs in the spiritual realm. We walk by what? Faith, not by sight. God says it, I put my faith in it, and I walk that way. And I'm constantly being affected by experience, which seeks to tear away and undermine my confidence in what he said, 
because I'm so into my experiences. Then there's a fourth reason why this is difficult for people to grasp, this new life. And that is this. The struggle with sin is sometimes so furious that we wonder if there ever really was a change in the first place. I don't know about you, but I get down on myself sometimes in my life. I get out there in the desert and I start thinking to myself, I say, man, you are such a wretch. How can you stand up there and say the things you say and do just the opposite? How can you say what you say and treat your wife the way you do? Then I get my thumb in my mouth and I start sucking on it and I get real depressed. Anybody relate? A couple of you, huh? So I'm fighting against sin in my flesh and I'm failing. I'm saying, whoa, why do I do the things I don't want to do? And I allow myself to be buried under all this guilt (laughs) rather than affirming the truth. And then I begin to wonder, was I ever really saved in the first place? Am I really different? Is this just a big act? What am I doing? You see, so it's very, very difficult for lots of people, some of them all of the time, but most of them some of the time, to really grasp the reality of what it means to be changed, have a new nature. Now this is so critical for us to to rehearse, to evaluate, to think about, to grasp, to realize, because it's going to have a bearing on what Paul says. It has a bearing on all the rest of our life, if not, in fact, eternity. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul makes two appeals. He makes two appeals. And he makes these two appeals on the basis of the reality that people have been changed. The first appeal is in verse 1. And we've covered that at some length. Very simply, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, he couldn't say that if we hadn't been changed. Is that right? There's no way in the world that he could say, live this life out if, you don't, if you're not capable of doing it. If you haven't been given a brand new nature which enables you to do this. The second um, appeal is in verse 17. And I want you to read this with me. Paul writes here, So I tell you this, and not only do I tell you, but I insist on it. And not only do I insist on it, but the Lord insists on it. You see, this is God's standard for his people. Who's Paul talking to? He's talking to the church, isn't he? He's not talking to the ungodly. He's not talking to those who are without God. He's talking to the church. He he says, I insist on this, and I do so in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. You must no longer live as the Gentiles. This is God's expectation for his people. You understand what I'm saying? This is God's expectation for his people. All he's saying is a changed nature demands a changed behavior. Does that make sense to you? A changed nature demands a changed behavior. Real simple. 
He says, you've been changed, therefore, live this way. That's Paul's theme throughout all of his letters anyway, isn't it? Sure it is. As we continue to study through Ephesians, you'll see several therefores. And all those therefores point back to verse 1 and verse 17 here. Shall we live the way the world lives? I mean the church. Shall the church live the way the world lives? Shall we? Why do we? (laughs) Why do we? Jesus says, be in the world, but what? Not of it. What does that mean? It means that we're to be out there among them. You don't become a Christian and then become a, a hermit, a monk. You go hide in some monastery. You're not to hide your light under a basket, he says. He goes on to say that we're to be salt. Salt makes a difference in its environment. When you salt your food, it makes a difference, doesn't it? Flavors it, preserves it, creates thirst, doesn't it? And so we're to be in the world. We're to be people, as we come to Christ, who are transformed, and we become the vanguard of God's kingdom that goes back out into the world and begins to interact with people in their lives in a whole new level. We begin to lay our lives down for people. We begin to minister to them. We begin to pray for them. We begin to bring healing in their life. We begin to work for reconciliation in their relationships. We be change agents in their life. Paul says, we have received a ministry of reconciliation. You know that? And so we're to be in the world, and we're to be used in God's hands this way. We're not to be of the world, because if we're of the world, still in the world's value systems and in the way the world thinks and in goal-seeking and so forth, we're not going to be useful to God. And we're not going to be the kind of change agents God wants. My wife and I work very hard in our neighborhood. We are committed to evangelizing our entire neighborhood, and it's quite a challenge because we have some very interesting and independent people in our neighborhood. But we're committed, and we interact with all the families regularly. It takes a lot of time, a lot of energy. But we're committed because we believe in, that God has planted us there to minister in that community. And uh, we don't push the gospel. We don't, I mean, they all know I'm a pastor. They all know about Hope Chapel. We've invited them at various times to come to church with us and so forth. And brought some of the kids. My son bribed some of the kids with the donut holes. <laughs> But we don't go and tell them they're wrong and we're right. We take time to invest our lives in their lives. We're making friends with them. We're demonstrating we really care. We're trying to be an assistance to them in their lives. And as we build trust, as we build credibility, as we build relationships, as they, as they see that our lives are substantial, that we're people of integrity and godliness, that if there's something going on in their life that's a tragedy or difficulty or a need, we come to them and say, we'll pray for you. And sometimes we'll pray with them right on the spot. See, that all speaks about who we are. And as we do that, as we build these relationships and build this trust, we're going in there and, and we're, we're, we're evidencing we're not of the world, but we're in it. We're rubbing elbows. We're making a difference. And just yesterday, oh, this was wonderful. Just yesterday, we had an opportunity to see, gain some visibility of some of the fruit of our labors in one family's life. And these people came and shared with us how important, ah, it just chokes me up, how important we are to their family and what we've meant to them. We had no idea. This is what we've been working for. But they came to us and they said, we can't tell you how much you mean to us. 
And how you've you've been there. How you've helped us and reached out to us. We just, they left and we just said, God, thank you. Praise the Lord. You see, we're in the world. We're committed to not being of it. We fight that battle every day. In Ephesus, let me get a little history lesson. The city of Ephesus, to which Paul writes this letter, the church at Ephesus, the church was a small group of people in a big city. There weren't a lot of Christians in Ephesus at this point. Paul had been there three years working hard to build the church up. Ephesus was a city that had been in existence for hundreds of years. And it was, uh, though not the largest city on the coastline of Asia Minor, it was uh, certainly the most influential city because it was the city that had the greatest harbor. And so it was the center of all the trade. And you know what port cities are like. Ships and trade going in and out and all kinds of influences from all kinds of people from all different parts of the world. So it was a city that had lots of different kinds of influences and most of them godless. Not only that, it was a city that was the center of all the pagan worship in Asia Minor. The temple to the goddess Artemis, or you might know her as Diana, was there in Ephesus. And this temple covered hundreds of acres. It was a massive place. Now, the name Diana, that's a very beautiful name, isn't it? I've always loved that name. I thought if I ever had a daughter, maybe I might name her Diana. I've always loved that name. But, you see, in our minds, that name, for several of us, would strike beautiful images. You think of a Greek goddess named Diana. Ooh, beautiful, right? You see these statues in the museums, carved and shapely and beautiful. That's not at all what Artemis or Diana was, let me tell you. The whole worship in Ephesus and all of Asia Minor was centered around sexuality. Ephesus was an absolute cesspool of vile iniquity. It was disgusting. Let me tell you what the idol was like that they worshipped. The idol of Artemis, the, the statue, if you will, wasn't some shapely, beautiful Greek goddess, as we would imagine. Rather, it was a, it was a shape that if you were to look at it, it was a cross between, you have a hard time discerning if it was a dog or a cow. And it was black, it was huge, massive. And all down the front of it were breasts. The whole thing was a massive breast. And that was an evidence and testimony of the center and the focus of their worship. It was all on sex. I mean, the, the way they would worship, they worshiped with temple prostitutes, male and female. People would come in and have sex. They'd have heterosexual, homosexual sex. They'd have bisexual sex. They would have uh, multiple partners in sex. They would engage in bestiality. That's sex with animals. It was gross. And this had been going on for hundreds of years. And this is the environment in which Paul comes, God leads him to establish a church. Can you imagine that? You read about it in the book of Acts. When he comes into town, he starts preaching. Lots of people start getting saved, and they start no longer buying these little um, souvenir idols and put all the artisans, the silversmiths, out of work, and they get all mad, and Paul almost loses his head. But the point is this. Ephesus was a heinous place. And these people who were getting saved were people of the city of Ephesus, 
And can you imagine, if you will, you've got this little tiny church, this, this little island of light in this sea of darkness, and the pressure, the incredible pressure, on some of these people who profess to be believers to go back out in and live the same life they used to live? Can anybody relate? What's the pull like in our culture? Tremendous pull, isn't there? TV, advertising, movies, it's all over. It's every place you go. The world is beckoning. Come on, come on, we've got it for you. We'll tell you how you should live. We'll tell you how you should look. We'll tell you what the real standards are. In some very obvious, blatant ways and in some not so obvious and very subtle ways. And if you understand the pull and the pressure of the world on your life as a Christian, if you understand how difficult it is sometimes to stay on the path and not to drift off and get sucked in, imagine what the Ephesians were experiencing. And indeed, many of them were drawn off. And so Paul says to them, he says, listen, I insist, and I insist in the Lord that you no longer live as the Gentiles do. Don't live as they do anymore. Because if you do, you cannot do and work the works that God has prepared for you to do. As long as we live the way the world lives, we'll never be able to do the things God has for us to do. And I am absolutely convinced. I mean, the Bible tells us we're gifted, aren't, doesn't it? The Bible says that God has prepared works before the creation of the world for each one of us. He has, each one of us have a significant role to play in the church, in the body of Christ, in God's overall plan and purpose of things. And if we don't fulfill our role in our place, it doesn't get done. You can't just say, well, if I don't do it, Bill will do it. Bill's got his hands full with doing what he's doing. How can he take on my load too? And if I'm so occupied with the world... Living in the world and, and living according to the world is I'll never get accomplished the thing that God wants me to get accomplished. And if I don't get it done, it doesn't get done. I don't say this to lay some kind of guilt trip. I say this to impress upon you the incredible view that God has of us and how he invests us with significant work. Stuff that is of eternal and lasting value. We're talking about eternity. We're not talking about stuff that's just going to kind of doesn't make any difference whether it gets done or not. I believe people are dying when they don't need to die. I believe people are going to hell when they don't need to go to hell. I, be, I believe relationships are suffering and breaking up when they don't need to be because the church, by and large, is not doing what it ought to be doing. And you know why? Because a lot of people in the church are living as the Gentiles do. I hate to admit it, but I'm I'll tell you, I mean, Paul faces this. I want to share with you in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4. This verse just pounded me right in the face when I read it as a new Christian. I was reading through the Bible and reading through the New Testament, studying the New Testament as a brand new Christian, and I'd never read the books of 1 and 2 Peter, and I was reading those, and this verse jumped off the page at me. And it spoke to me, and I could relate. Listen to what he says. Chapter 4, 1 Peter, verse 3. It's like God just came down and stood right in front of me and talked to me. He says, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. I went, whoa, man, did he have my number? He says, you've done all you're going to do. Enough, no more. 
And then he went on to enumerate. He says, living in debauchery, that I did. Lust, that I did. Drunkenness, that I did. Orgies, that I did. Carousing, that I did. And detestable idolatry, that I did. I did it all. God came down and said, that's enough. I went, whoa. And then in verse 4, he goes on, he says, and they think it's strange, the others who, who you've come apart from, they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. In other words, these guys who you used to pal around with, used to go out and do these things with, now you don't do them anymore, and they think it's strange. What's the matter with Zach? What's happened to Zach? He's got born again. That's what happened to him. Oh, he got religion. Oh, no. And then the abuse comes. I mean, I want you to know, I used to run with some guys that were just, I mean, we were, we were into the world to the max. We were into the world to the max. And uh, we partied. We partied. We spent money like it was water, and we had it, too. We drove the finest cars. We chased the most beautiful women we could find. We smoked the finest dope. We drank the finest liquor. We did the most crazy things because we thought we were cool. But you know what? Then I became a Christian. My life changed dramatically. My buddies would call me up and they'd say, hey, now they knew I'd become a Christian. They'd say, let's go, let's go uh, party. I'd say, you know I don't do that anymore. Oh, come on. No, I'm a Christian. Ah, oh, so what? What difference does that make? Big difference. And then one day, they call me up, and there was a special party happening. Before I became a Christian, I'd traveled around the world for a couple of years, and uh, I'd spent a, a, a couple of summers in Spain, in one part in July, in a city called uh, um, Pamplona. And they have a fiesta in the beginning of, of, the, of the month of July called San Fermin. That's where they run the bulls through the city streets. I ran with the bulls. <laughs> Amazing. I look back on it now and I think, what in the world did you ever do that for? I almost got killed a couple of times, run over and gored by bulls. And just, oh, you just, you're nuts. You just do that stuff. You live as the world lives. Well, anyway, every year when, when Pamplona happens, when San Fermin happens, if, if you don't go there in, in, uh, in Spain, then there's always parties here. And in Manhattan Beach, there's always a big party every year. All the guys who would normally go, who don't go, end up having this big party. So they called me up and they said, hey, hey, San Fermin's coming up and we're having a big party. All the guys are going to be there. And I thought, hmm, I wanted to go, but I didn't want to go. Then I began to think, no, it's an opportunity for me to lead someone to Christ, to share, my, share the gospel. But I was still a new Christian, and so I was a little timid, a little afraid for, for the environment. But I, discern, I, I determined to go. Now, please don't misunderstand me, and those of you who are worldly Christians use my experience as a basis for your going out and being foolish. Say, well, I can go party because Zach said he did. No, no, don't use me as that example. It was the only time I did it, and I did not go to party. I went to lead someone to Christ. Now, I went there, had my Coca-Cola. Everybody else was just getting ripped, laughing, partying, you know, sharing all the stories and all the lies, you know, that you do. And the lies seem to get bigger and bigger each year. 
Just 40 bulls ran me over. <laughs> well, last year it was 20. <laughs> so I'm talking, I'm moving around and just trying to find, Lord, who is it that, that I can talk to? Who is it that I can get off on the side and, and share the gospel with? Who do you want me to talk to? And I could never seem to get into a conversation to work the gospel in. So I was standing at the, at the edge of this little group listening, and, you know, and I'd just about given up, and I was going to go home in a little while. And this one girl just comes over and stands next to me, starts talking to me. And I said, get away from me. I'm not interested. And it was like she was coming on to me. And I said, ah, get away from me. But she kept talking to me. And, I, and all of a sudden, the thought comes in, listen, this is the one I want you to talk to. And I said, oh, man. <laughs> so I turned, and I started engaging. And we started talking. And, and you know how, you know in the single scene where you meet somebody, oh, what do you do? And what do you do? And, you know, you do all that back and forth trivial garbage, you know. We got through all that stuff, and then she got real serious. Her countenance on her face changed. She looked at me, and I thought, uh-oh, here it comes. I said, Lord, just give me wisdom. And she looked at me. She got real serious. She said, can I ask you a personal question? I said, sure. And she said, uh, what sign are you? <laughs> Profound, huh? What sign are you? And I said, Lord, give me wisdom. Inspire me now. And so I thought, and it would seem like in a flash, in an instant, he spoke to me. And out of my mouth came these, this word, ichthus. She says, what? I said, ichthus. Now, some of you don't know what ichthus means. You've seen the little fish, little Christian symbol fish? Okay, the Greek word for fish is ichthus. And the word, the letters, are representative of the phrase, Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. Okay? So in the early church, where they weren't, where if they displayed the, the symbol of a cross, uh, they opened themselves wide up for persecution. And so they, they camouflaged their Christianity by, by carrying this insignia of a fish, and the Romans wouldn't catch on to it too quickly. So she said, what sign are you? I said, ichthus. She says, she says, no, no, no. She says, what sign are you? I said, ichthus. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I know what you're talking about. She says, what's ichthus? <laughs> I said, the fish. She said, what? I said, yeah, ichthus is the fish. She says, no, 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 no. She said, ichthus is, or she said, the fish is... Um, How do you guys know? Your response, your response should have been, God, you know, I forgot all that stuff. Old things have passed away. I <laughs> got you, didn't I? She says, no, 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 the fish is Pisces. I said, no, 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 the fish is Ichthus. She says, what do you mean? I said, I'm glad you asked that. So I sat down with her and I explained to her what the fish was and what ichthus meant and the symbol, symbolism and so forth. And I, I looked at her in the eye and I said, I said, I'm a Christian. I've committed my life to Jesus Christ. I'm an ichthus. She looked at me and, and she was almost speechless, but then she said, oh, how boring. And I said, boring? 
As a lady, let me tell you something. Christianity is anything but boring. I mean, when you understand what it means to be a Christian, when you understand what it means to live on the knife edge of faith, moment by moment, day after day, not knowing what God's going to do. You wake up in the morning and say, okay, here we go. And it's anything but boring. Amen? So Peter tells us, he says, you know, enough time has passed for us to do all that stuff. We're to be in the world, but not of it. And we're to be clear, loving, gentle, gracious testimonies of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to no longer live as the Gentiles do. If you're a new person, it ought to result in a new life. We need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of it often and regularly. Now let me just cover one more thing with you quickly and then we're going to break. On your notes, I've listed four spaces for you to write in the characteristics, things that are characteristic of the godless life. I just want to quickly cover with you the first characteristic. Paul says at the end of verse 17 of chapter 4 of Ephesians, He says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. The thought life, the intellectual life of the ungodly, of those who are without God, their intellectual life is futile. That means it's empty, it's going nowhere, it's deceptive, meaningless, it is futile. If you're living your life, if you're a Christian, you're living your life as the world does, all that's telling you, all I'd ought to say to you, is that your thinking is futile, because the world's thinking is futile. It's empty. It's meaningless. It's going nowhere. Absolutely nowhere. Now, there's lots of wonderful people in the world who aren't Christians. Lots of friendly, gracious, kind, compassionate, just good people. Humanly speaking, On the scale of human righteousness, they're way up there at the top. But if they don't believe in Jesus Christ, they're still without God. They can profess, they can say, I believe in God, but the Bible is very clear that if they're without Christ, they are without God. They are the ungodly. They are the godless. And their thinking is futile. Their thinking is empty. It's truly meaningless. They have no basis for doing what's right. Because doing what's right finds its basis in the very character of God in Christ himself. You see that? Someone says, well, I I do good stuff. Why do you do it? Well, because it's right. Well, why is it right? Well, it just is. Well, why? You've got to keep pushing them back and pushing them back and pushing them back. Because true goodness finds itself, finds its beginning in God's own character, in his own nature, And God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so if you don't believe in Christ, you don't really believe in the true God. And you have no basis for doing what's right. You have no basis for even your human righteousness. You're a hypocrite. To the max. But you see, Paul says, don't live like they do in the futility of their thinking. The basic issue of lifestyle finds its center in our thought life. Everything we do emanates from our thought life. Proverbs, Proverbs 23 says, As a man thinks, so is he. What you think about all day long is what you are. 
What you think about all day long is what you'll do. As a man thinks, so is he. Francis Schaeffer wrote a tremendous book. I love books. I love good books. The title of this book is True Spirituality. It's a pretty heady book, so you've got to be pretty, pretty up with him to, to read his stuff. But get it and read it. True Spirituality by Francis Schaeffer. He talks about this stuff. He talks about what we're talking about now. And he uses this phrase. It's beautiful. He says the battle, when it's all said and done, when it all comes down to the bottom line, the battle is in the mind. The battle is up here in the thought life. Paul in, in Romans chapter 12 says that we are changed and transformed as our mind is renewed, as our thinking changes. Do you understand that? Now the godless, the ungodly, people without God, they can't think clearly. They can't think accurately. They have no knowledge of true spirituality and morality. They have no basis for it. And true spirituality is the basis of all life. It's founded, all life is founded on true spirituality. When you understand what's true spiritually, then you begin to understand what life's all about. And your thinking begins to move in the, in the right direction. What's the first step in repentance? Well, what's repentance? Let me ask you that. Repentance is quite simply this. You're going one direction, you repent, you turn around and go the other direction, right? That's repentance. So what's the very first step in repentance? A change in your thinking. You're thinking this way, you think differently. There's three things you've got to change in your thinking if you're going to repent in your thinking and have repentance be true in your life. The first thing is you've got to begin to think differently about yourself. The second thing is you've got to be thinking differently about your spiritual condition. And the third thing is you've got to be thinking differently about who God is. Those are all key issues, aren't they? Sure they are. And as you begin to think differently, you repent in your thinking, and your life follows your thinking. You begin to think differently, you begin to live differently. What's important? What's important? What are we living for? You sit down, you evaluate your life, you say, now what's really important to me? No fooling around, no pad answers. What is really the bottom line? What am I living for? What are the people around me living for? When you share the gospel with somebody, when you want to lead them to Christ, you ask them, what are you living for? What's important? What's really important? Most people today, if you evaluate their lives, and even many in the church, are going to find that what's important is not what ought to be important. Most people, most people's lives are bound up in thinking and acting in an arena of ultimate trivia. The trivial pursuits of life. Things that aren't really going to make any difference. People are pursuing stuff that just is, it's just going to all burn. They're pouring all their energies and all their time into that. People today are consumed in the pursuit of selfish goals. They're consumed in the accumulation of that which is temporary. They're consumed in looking for satisfaction in that which is fundamentally deceptive and ultimately disappointing. I mean, all of us want to be fulfilled, don't we? All of us long to be satisfied. All of us want to have meaning in our life and purpose and want to know that we really count and our lives count for something. True? But where are we looking for the solution for that? If our thinking is futile... We're looking down roads that are just going to lead us to a great big zero. 
No longer live your lives as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. How are you thinking? What's important? Where are you going? What's your life going to count for? Where are you taking your stand? Who are you? See, each one of us has to answer that question. The first characteristic of the life of the ungodly is intellectual futility. Don't let that be the mark of your life. Let's pray. Father, we, we trust that you have been here this whole time by your Holy Spirit. You've listened to us. You've, you know what's going on in every heart and mind. Lord, you've been patient with me as I ranted and raved, and I pray that you would, by your Spirit, take things that I've said and, if need be, reshape them and remold them and deliver them in a way that people can receive them. I pray that, Lord, that your word and your truth would penetrate deeply into all of our hearts and our minds, that each one of us would begin to evaluate our thinking. Each one of us would begin to evaluate what it means to be a Christian, to be in the world but not of it, to no longer live as the Gentiles do, but to be holy and fully committed to you, given to your purposes. Lord, you, you've already told us that we have access to your power, and that as we step out in faith, that power comes to bear. Lord, encourage our hearts. Stir us. Move in our life. That indeed we might be a people who live our lives for your glory. And your kingdom would grow. Be a blessing in this community. Lord, preserve us from evil and sin and the evil one. Help us to recognize the schemes of the devil. Help us to see sin in our own flesh. And that we may, by the power of your Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body. We bless you, Father. We thank you for being our God. We thank you for Jesus and for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for your grace and your forgiveness. We thank you that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.